Thomas Merton was not your average monk. In 1965, when he built his hermitage in New Haven, Kentucky, Merton was debatably the most famous and controversial monk on the planet. He was a champion for civil rights, a vocal critic of nuclear armament, and a fierce dissenter to the war in Vietnam. He was a Catholic priest who loved Zen Buddhism, and his beliefs made him a star and a contradiction. He wanted to change society for the better, and he also wanted to retreat. Merton built the hermitage to create a sanctuary for himself, an escape. But in 1968, just three years later, he was found dead in his room in Bangkok, Thailand. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're going to New Haven, Kentucky, to explore the little house where Thomas Merton, a.k.a. the prophet poet, a.k.a. the rebel monk, tried to get away from the world. And the world was not having it. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. And I believe that by openness to Buddhism, to Hinduism, and to these great Asian traditions, we stand a wonderful chance of learning more about the potentiality of our own traditions because they have gone, from the natural point of view, so much deeper into this than we have. So I will conclude on that note, so I will disappear from view and we can all have a Coke or something. Thank you very much. Those were Thomas Merton's last words at a conference in Thailand. It is kind of incredible how well they encapsulate his persona and his worldview. He sometimes complained out loud about his own contradictions. That's Brother Paul Quinnen from the Abbey of Gethsemane in New Haven, Kentucky. Merton had a, a genius with words. I mean, he was a, a word craftsman, and he was able to communicate the deeper aspects of the contemplative life, the interior life. Uh, and that's really what was so, of so much appeal to people. Brother Paul and the rest of the world first got to know Merton through his best-selling autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, which came out in October of 1948 and sold over 30,000 copies in just a couple of months. So it was really the story of his conversion from being a sort of a knockabout intellectual young man at Oxford and Columbia University to... Discovery of the deep prayer life and the mystical tradition, which is in Catholicism. 
This was only a short while after World War II, and the general population was still reeling. Merton's story just struck a chord. His struggle to find a sense of home and peace was relatable. Merton was born in France in 1915 to American and Welsh immigrants. He lost his mother when he was just six and his dad when he was just 16. His grandparents and his uncle took him in, but it meant he had to uproot and relocate to the UK. He would get into petty trouble every now and again as a kid, but he still managed to make it to Oxford. But once he got there, he really let loose. Well, I think one of the wild, you know, one of these wild parties at Oxford, I guess, you know, he, I don't know what led up to this, but they tried to crucify him. <laughs> yeah, they started running a nail through the palm of his hand and he escaped by, by bursting through a window. Uh, he broke the window and got out of there. And he showed me the scar that was still on his hand. Merton had his run-ins with the law. He even fathered a child out of wedlock, but suffered more tragedy when his child and the mother were killed in a bombing. He was uprooted once more. In 1935, he transferred from Oxford to Columbia University. Throughout his time at Oxford, Merton had been writing. But at Columbia, he finally found a way to share it. And was uh, sort of a big man on campus. He ran the, uh, the Jester, which was the university magazine, mostly a humor magazine. But it was not all jokes with Merton. He was also writing poetry, and he did some volunteer work that opened his eyes to the suffering of people in the city that he now called home. He went down to Harlem and did some volunteer work there at the hospitality house. And he was really quite horrified at the condition of the Negro people there. This new place inspired Merton to make another pretty drastic change. After reading the work of Etienne Gilson, this Catholic philosopher, Merton was inspired to join the Catholic Church. And once he graduated, one of his professors suggested that he check out this one Catholic monastery in New Haven, Kentucky. It was called the Abbey of Gethsemane. So he came and he was just thunderstruck. The former troublemaker felt that he had finally found stability, a place of peace both externally and internally. And seven years later, 1948, he published The Seven-Story Mountain. The book inspired a kind of mini-monastic mania. Men and women from all over the country started flocking to monasteries to find a quieter life. And those Merton maniacs even included a teenage brother, Paul. I had read The Seven-Story Mountain, uh, among one or two other books, had very much influenced me. And uh, I, I said, well, uh, here, here's a monastery. I can, I can go and live close to God. When he first got to the abbey, Brother Paul was assigned what's called a novice master, sort of like a mentor. For him, it was a guy named Father Lewis. Well, it was a month before I found out that Father Lewis was Thomas Merton. <laughs> so this mentor, Father Lewis, was assigned to Brother Paul and was, in fact, Thomas Merton, the man who had literally inspired Brother Paul to be there in the first place. So you could understand if it was a little overwhelming for Brother Paul. But he kept his cool. Well, by then I, I was relating to him as, as a person. And, you know, so we had a, 
already had a relationship. <laughs> I I knew that, that that would just be kind of adolescent to, to be over-impressed. The Cistercian Order, also called Trappists, have a rule of silence for all activities. Maybe it sounds like the perfect place to write in peace, but Merton was restless. He wanted to get his message out personally and connect with people face-to-face. It sounds simple, but as a Trappist, he needed permission from the abbot, Abbot Don James. So there were times when Don James withheld permissions, and that, that would great on Father Lewis. Just a reminder, Father Lewis is Thomas Merton. Merton is Lewis. Lewis is Merton. It's all the same guy. And Don James knew that, uh, in a way, Father Lewis was special. And you know, he gave him a, a lot of slack on the rope. But on the other hand, uh, Father Lewis was the sort of person that could always find more. Merton and the abbot did not always see things the same way. And honestly, Merton just wasn't crazy about authority in general. Throughout his work in the 1950s and 60s, he still had a little bit of that old rebel streak in him. He was uh, very much concerned with uh, nuclear armaments. He was intensely concerned that, you know, there was a period of about uh, two years where he thought that was his, his main mission was to, to speak up against nuclear armaments. So he, so he did some writing on that. He was opposed to the Vietnam War, and he wasn't all, all that articulate about it because, it, you know, things were still developing. But it was, you know, it was, I guess, well known. He became sort of a uh, mascot of the uh, Catholic peace movement. He wrote a long prose poem called Original Child Bomb about the after effects of the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and another poem about the four little girls killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombings in Birmingham. Merton was clearly tuned into the outside world, while also seeking even more seclusion. So much so that he considered leaving the order so that he could find an even more secluded monastery. Instead, he just asked if he could move out of the abbey to live on his own. And that's where the... uh hermitage that was built here for him on the monastery property in 1960 was a kind of compromise between these two sides of himself. In 1960, Don James allowed Merton to have a hermitage, about a 15-minute walk from the monastery. It was a private retreat where he could be alone. Technically, this was against the monastery rules because being in a monastery was about communal living, and the solitude of a hermitage kind of went against that. But this one-room White House on the monastery's grounds was ideal for the kind of seclusion that Merton was looking for. And it's got a flat roof and a chimney on top. Very simple. And it's got a big front porch. The front porch is, is as wide and deep as the front room which makes that a very convenient living space. You can, you can spend a lot of time just being on the porch. On the inside, the hermitage isn't painted at all, and you can see the concrete blocks that make up the building. It has a unique, a unique smell. Uh, you go in, you smell concrete and wood smoke, because that's how the place was heated, wood smoke. 
So Merton had his hermitage, but he didn't really get his solitude. He still had to spend a lot of time at the monastery, teaching and mentoring new monks like Brother Paul. But every day, Merton was able to sneak back up to the hermitage and write a little bit. And little by little, that amount of time increased. Uh, It got to the point where he could stay overnight at the hermitage. In 1966, he published a book called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, a collection of reflections on the world. He acknowledges in it that though the monastery and his hermitage provide him a certain level of seclusion, he still wanted some connection to the outside world. Talks about the issues of the time, like the civil rights movement and America's shifting values. In 1968, the monastery got another new abbot. And this abbot was a little more lenient with Merton. The new abbot was a younger man and very much a disciple of of, uh, Merton. Believed that Merton should travel, you know, that, that we should share his gifts with the rest of the world. Merton, a seeker of solitude, had not done much traveling since joining the Abbey, but he jumped at the opportunity. He went to uh, Arizona. Uh, he went to uh, Alaska. Then he went down to California and gave talks. Then uh, went off to Asia. Well in Asia, Merton met with practitioners of monastic life in all kinds of various religious traditions. But also well there, Merton died. He died in a cottage near Bangkok in Thailand. And the official story is that he died from an electrocution accident. But there are a number of folks who believe that there was maybe foul play by the CIA or another organization that wanted to silence Merton over his strong anti-Vietnam War sentiments. Either way, even though it's been over 50 years since Thomas Merton passed away, his legacy lives on. And it lives on in two different ways. First, through his well over a dozen books that folks still turn to when they want to reflect on the issues of the world while finding their own bits of solitude. Merton joined the Abbey of Gethsemane three days after Pearl Harbor and died just a month after Nixon was elected to his first term. His reflections from within the monastery of that tumultuous period helped his readers then and now deal with their own tumultuous times. And second, Merton lives on through his hermitage. It's very much in use uh, by the community. I go up once a year to make a retreat, spend a whole week up there, take my food and my books up there. And a lot of us do that now. About uh, eight or ten of us will reserve the uh, the place for, you know, a, a private retreat. But members of the public can still go up there from time to time just by reaching out to Brother Paul and scheduling a visit. Every now and then, he goes up to the hermitage with students who want to learn more about Thomas Merton. And it seems like that was something that Merton would have loved. Well, you know, even from the very first, he he had this two attitudes toward the hermitage. And he actually wrote up something called Project for a Hermitage, in which he said, well, now, you know, this would be a hermitage, but... It'd also be a place where, you know, writers and intellectuals and poets and artists can meet and have a discussion, uh, you know, with the hermit. And uh, so it's it's something he wanted to share. And that is happening now. I mean, uh, 
we had 20 people up there uh, for the anniversary of his death, which was on December the 10th. And uh, we had a wonderful discussion. And then uh, later on in the evening, we shared poetry. So what he dreamed of actually has turned out to be true. A place where solitude and community can coexist. Very Merton. Special thanks to Brother Paul for sharing this story with us. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Baudelaire. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder-Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Manolo Morales. Gianna Palmer. Tracy Samuelson. John Delore. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. And this episode was sound designed and mixed by... Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. Listen.